Our scripture reading is found in the 12th chapter of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 12, and I'll be reading the first 12 verses. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, for there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in his great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. One of the greatest military victories in history took place near the end of World War II as the Allies staged a massive invasion of the coastline of France on what we now call D-Day. But as crucial as that military victory was, the most crucial part of the whole plan actually took place in a quiet country estate in the middle of England, far from the firing of rifles and the bursting of bombs. This place was called Bletchley Park, and there for years, a group of unknown codebreakers labored fervently to break the supposedly unbreakable codes of the German army. Not only were they able to break the codes leading up to this D-Day invasion, but they used them to send bogus military orders to fool Hitler and his generals about when and where this great invasion would take place. They knew it was coming, but they were fooled as to when and where because of these bogus messages sent through these stolen codes. If you had walked through that quiet country estate, you would have had no idea that one of the most crucial aspects of one of the most important military victories in the history of the modern era was taking place right there on that place. You know, the same is true about the birth of Jesus Christ. 
If you were a resident of Bethlehem 2,000 years ago on the night when Jesus was born, and you happened to be walking around that evening and you stumbled upon this teenage girl called Mary and her carpenter husband named Joseph, as they were sitting there admiring their newborn son, you might have thought, well, that's really sweet, but you would never have realized the cosmic importance of what was happening there in that moment. Now we know that the birth of Christ was the greatest eternal and cosmic event in all of history as God became a man, as he came to earth to save his people, to defeat all of his enemies, and eventually to restore all of creation to its perfect order as it was always intended. Revelation 12 is one of my favorite passages in scripture. If you like fantasy literature, it really reads like something out of a J.R.R. Tolkien novel. You have this beautiful, supernaturally beautiful woman and her very, very special child being attacked by a great dragon and a great battle ensuing between angels and demons and ultimately a great eagle that swoops in to save the woman, to take her and protect her and provide for her. What's amazing about this wild passage in the middle of all this symbolic apocalyptic literature in the book of Revelation is that it is actually describing in part of this chapter that very mundane event about a young girl giving birth to a child in a very small, quiet town in the middle of Judea. What Revelation chapter 12 actually does is it pulls back the curtain beyond what a person could see with their physical eyes to show the spiritual significance, the cosmic spiritual significance of what happened around, behind, and because of the birth of this very special child. Revelation chapter 12 is not about future events. It's actually a symbolic picture of an epic conflict that has been going on ever since, not just the beginning of time, but before the beginning of time. And it particularly focuses upon that period of time between when Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem and when he will return in all his glory with all the might of heaven to defeat his enemies and to restore creation to its original state. As we look at this fantastical picture, we see that there are three main characters in history from God's perspective. This is how God looks at the earth, how God looks at human history, he sees three main characters at work in all the events of history. First of all, we have this glorious woman. In verse 1, it says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. As you look at this in the context of the book of Revelation, it becomes very obvious that this woman represents the church, the Old Testament church, which called Israel in the Old Testament, and the New Testament church of Jesus Christ. This woman represents the people of God chosen before the foundation of the world, the elect whom God loved before the foundation of the world and put in place the covenant of grace to plan her salvation. This is, as you can look at it here, it's an ideal view of the church, not as we see it. 
When we look at the church today, we see a divided, soiled, struggling, often weak organization on earth from a horizontal perspective. But this is how God looks upon the invisible church, his chosen people, as he looks at the church through the work of salvation that was accomplished in Christ. It says this, this woman is clothed with the sun. She's radiant. She's pure. She reflects the glory of God. It says she has the moon under her feet. When scripture talks about something being under a, somebody's feet, it's talking about a rule. The woman rules over creation as she was intended from the beginning. And this crown of 12 stars speaks of victory. It's a glorious crown of victory. And the 12 represents the, the people of God, the whole true people of God, the 12 patriarchs, the 12 apostles, the church. We need to always be reminded of how God looks at his church through the blood of Christ, through the washing, the cleansing, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. This idealized view here in Revelation 12, not what the church was, not what the church is, but what she will be by the grace of God. The second great character in this whole drama of history is the great red dragon. In verse 3 it says, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. We need not have any question about who this great red dragon is because verse 9 tells us explicitly. The great dragon, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Oh, how I wish that all of the symbolic pictures in the book of Revelation came with that kind of a clear explanation. But there is no doubt that the dragon or the serpent in scripture is always a representative of Satan. The seven heads and the seven crowns represent the worldly authorities who stand opposed to the Lord, who stand opposed to the Messiah, the Messianic King, and stand up, stands opposed to the people of God, the church. These seven heads, seven crowns represent Satan on earth. They are Satan's representatives as they wield earthly power and authority as they wield that power and authority against the church. The, the ten horns represent the financial, political, and military might of these world powers. All of this imagery comes from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. The book of Revelation continuously borrows images that have already been established in this kind of apocalyptic end times literature from all over the scriptures. And this image of the dragon, these, these symbols come from the book of Daniel. In verse 4, it says of this dragon, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. This is probably a reference to the revolt that Satan led in heaven before creation, before Adam and Eve, before God brought all of the universe into existence. A war broke out in heaven between Satan and a significant minority of the angels in heaven and they were cast out of heaven. And there you have the origin of what we call the fallen angels or the demons, these stars that are cast down from heaven. This conflict between the dragon, between Satan and the woman and the, between Satan and the church, it began in the Garden of Eden. 
when Satan, that ancient serpent, tempted Eve to sin and caused her to turn away from God, to reject God's authority, and Eve became a follower of the ways of the prince of darkness. In Genesis 3.15, we have there described God's curse upon the serpent after this great fall of mankind. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is one of those cases where it's hard to imagine, but war is actually a blessing. War is actually a gift of God's grace because we were at war with God. The chosen, the elect, were, as we were born into this world, at war with God. We were on the same side as Satan, rebelling against God's authority. But in his grace, even though he puts this curse upon the creation, the curse upon Adam and Eve, and a curse upon the, the serpent, upon Satan, there is an act of grace in the sense that he says, I'm going to put war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. I am going to call to myself, choose for myself, call to myself, redeem to myself, and restore to myself a people who will be on my side. I will be with them. I will be their God. They will be my people. Emmanuel, God with us. By his grace, God would shift us from being his enemies to being his people, his allies. This conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman is really behind all of human history as we know it. Cain versus Abel. Jacob versus Esau. Pharaoh versus Moses. Saul versus David. The Pharisees versus Christ. Emperor Nero against the early church. And this conflict goes on today. And we can see it in so many different ways throughout our own culture, let alone throughout the world. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman at war. And then you have the third great character of the drama of human history, this child who would rule. Verse 5 says, The woman gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. This one would be the seed of the woman. The one seed of the woman who would come to crush the head of the serpent once and for all the one who would bring ultimate and final victory to the people of God. This is the child that we've been studying in our sermons here at Oakwood the last few weeks from Isaiah chapter 9 and from Isaiah chapter 7. Where in Isaiah 7 it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Or as we saw over and over again in Isaiah chapter 9, Unto us a child is born. He will be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. This is the child that is born to the woman. So all of history revolves around this conflict between the church and the devil and the Christ child who was born to bring peace, not between the church and the devil, but peace between the church and God, so that God can defeat the devil once and for all. 
And really that is the overall message of Revelation 12. These three great victories over the dragon, over Satan and his forces. Revelation 12 is given to us for our encouragement. We need to go back to Revelation 12 over and over again. So many people are frightened by the, the weird symbolism and the difficult interpretation involved in reading through and studying the book of Revelation. But Revelation is given for the encouragement of the church as we live in the midst of this ongoing cosmic battle. Our instinct when somebody faces a tragedy or somebody faces a great loss in their life, our tendency is to want to put our arm around them and say, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. But honestly, in so many of these tragic situations, we can't guarantee that. We don't know that. We don't know the future. We don't control the future. We don't know that it's going to be okay. But when it comes to this great cosmic battle that is still being fought between the dragon and the church, the message of Revelation 12 is that it's going to be okay. Church, rest in Christ. Be at peace. Be hopeful. Be aggressive. Be confident. Because it's all going to be okay. Five times in this chapter we are told that Satan will be thrown down or has been thrown down. The first time we see it is in the deliverance of this Christ child, of this seed of the woman, this, this child who is born. The deliverance that we see as it's laid out there in the beginning, I can't imagine a more disturbing picture of danger and vulnerability than this image that is given to us in the first few verses of the chapter about a woman writhing in labor, about to give birth, and then this tiny child who is about to emerge from the birth canal and there crouching nearby is this huge powerful angry dragon ready to seize the child the moment he is born and destroy him devour him of course as we know the birth narratives from the gospels the most direct application of this is to what actually happened at the birth of Christ as King Herod representing the dragon representing these dark forces, the human representative of the kingdom of darkness, as Herod attempted to kill the Christ child by luring the wise men to lead him to the child, and then by, after that failed, by killing all of the children under the age of two in the town of Bethlehem. But as the story is told in fantastic terms here in Revelation 12, there's this mysterious event says suddenly, says her child was caught up to God and to his throne. It's striking here that this symbolic picture of the birth of Christ actually skips over the greatly significant events of not only his life and his teaching, but his crucifixion and his resurrection and immediately skips to the ascension. Why? Not because none of that's important, because all that's crucially important but because that's the focus of this, this vision, is that Satan fails. Satan is defeated in his greatest attempt to stop the deliverance, the redemption, the restoration of God's people. And this child is not only delivered from the clutches of Satan, but he ascends to the throne in heaven as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's a sudden and shocking twist in the story. And that brings us to the second great fall of Satan, of the dragon in this scenario. 
the casting down of the accuser. Look at verses 7 and 8. In verses 7 and 8, you have there described a war in heaven. It coincides with the child being caught up to the throne. When the child is caught up to the throne, a war breaks out. And the result of it in verse 9 says, And the great dragon was thrown down. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now the language of this is reminiscent of what we know happened before creation. When Satan and his demons, his fallen angels, rebelled against God's authority and lost that war and were cast out of heaven. That's the language that's used here, but it's not talking about something that happened before creation. It's talking about something that happened when the child who is born to the virgin is delivered and ascends to his throne in heaven. This is what Jesus was referring to in John chapter 12, verses 31 and 32, when he says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. When the ministry, the testimony of the apostles went out into the countryside, his disciples, at that time, it said, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. There was some great defeat that happened in the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What event caused this victory? In what sense was Satan driven out of his place in heaven at the time of the ascension of Christ? After having accomplished the crucifixion and the resurrection, in what way did Satan fall? Well, in Revelation 20, it talks about Satan being bound when Christ ascended to heaven. And there it says that binding of Satan that took place when Christ ascended to heaven was so that he might not deceive the nations. But that's not actually the aspect of it that's emphasized here. It says in verse 10, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. That's the great way in which he was defeated through the death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ is that his ability to accuse the saints was taken away completely. He had lost his only deadly weapon, the one that he tried to wield against Job when he stood before God and accused Job at the beginning of that great book of the Old Testament. The name Satan means accuser, but his ability to accuse us, the elect, the chosen, God's people from all ages, his ability to accuse us was taken away at the cross when Jesus died for our sins and said, it is finished. No longer can Satan accuse us of sin, of rebellion, of being on his side. All basis for condemnation and judgment has been taken away for those who trust in Jesus as their Savior. And that brings us to the third great fall that's described here in Revelation 12, the deliverance of the church from the clutches of this angry, angry devil. In verse 6, after giving birth to the Messiah, it says, The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. That number 1260, if you look at it in the context of the other images and 
visions that are given in the book of Revelation. You see that that 1260 days is times, times, and half a time. It's three and a half years in, in literal time. But what it represents is the time of testing between the first coming of Christ when the church is established after his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, when the church becomes established on the Pentecost from that point until Christ comes again in the future to destroy all of his enemies and to restore the earth and to bring to fulfillment all of the promises of our salvation. This is the period between the first and second coming of Christ, that 1260 days. And it says that the woman, after the child ascends to, the, to his throne in heaven, the woman escapes to the wilderness. In scripture, wilderness is a picture like when, when Israel was delivered from its slavery in Egypt. It was taken into the wilderness before it was taken into the promised land. And throughout scripture, that whole motif, that whole idea of God's people living in the wilderness is a picture of what it's like for us to live in this fallen world as redeemed people. We are forgiven. We are being sanctified. We are promised to be heirs of the coming kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth. But in the meantime, we are being tested in the wilderness. It is a place where we suffer it's a place where we are deprived. It's a place where our faith is tested. But we are, it is also a place where we are given the Lord's provision and the Lord's protection. And that's the promise of this passage. We are strangers and aliens in this world as God's people. But we're trusting the Lord to provide the manna, to provide the quail, to provide the water, to provide for our needs as we live in hope of the coming Christ. Did you notice that the song in heaven, the victory song that's given there in, beginning in verses uh, 10 and 11, it ends on a very somber note in verse 12. It says there, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has gone down to you in his great wrath because he knows that his time is short. The devil has no power in heaven anymore. His power as an accuser is gone. He can't attack the risen Christ. He has ascended safely to his throne in heaven. He can't accuse his followers, so he unleashes his violent anger upon the church in the midst of the wilderness here on earth. I love this quote from the commentator, one of my favorite commentators named Leon Morris. He says this, the troubles of the persecuted righteous arise not because Satan is too strong, but because he is beaten. And so, even though the climactic ultimate victory has already been won at the cross, in the empty tomb, and the ascension to the throne in heaven of, of the child who became our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, even though the war has been won then, the battle continues until he comes again to bring it to completion. It's kind of like that period between D-Day, which was the decisive victory that practically ensured victory for the Allies in World War II. But the war went on for many months afterwards. There were many more losses, many more trials, many more tribulations until victory was complete in the invasion of Germany. So now we live between the decisive victory that brings us ultimate victory and the final completion of the battles. But it's only for a while. From this eternal perspective given in Revelation 12, it's only for a while. And Satan's defeat is coming. 
for your encouragement, let me read to you of the description of that defeat in symbolic terms over in Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And what's the ultimate outcome of that victorious return which is still to come? Chapter 20, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so how do we live with that great hope and confidence that the war really is already won, even though the battles continue? Well, I think the key is found in verse 11. There's where you find the weapons of our spiritual warfare, where it says, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. What is our great defense against all the, the flaming arrows of the evil one? What's our great defense? The blood of the Lamb. The accuser has been defeated. There can be no accusation because of our sin against us, for Christ has paid in full the price that our sins deserve. Our defense is the blood of the Lamb. What's our offense? What's our sword that we fight with? What is our, our aggressive weapon that we use against all dark forces in the world around us? The word of our testimony. Our testimony to the saving work of Jesus Christ and the impact that it has had upon our lives our testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we live the gospel and proclaim the gospel, we not only survive in the wilderness until Christ comes again, but we push forward the lines of victory in the battle. And what is our confidence and perseverance? It's that we have no fear of death. We have not loved our lives even unto death. Death is victory for the children of God, not defeat. To live is Christ and to die is gain because the child has ascended to the throne and he reigns over all forever. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this fantastic picture of the ongoing spiritual war between the forces of darkness and your forces of light. We thank you for sending your son to be the Messiah, to take on our adversary and to defeat him in what appeared to be his own personal greatest defeat when he was crucified on the cross, which turned out to be the key to not only his victory, but our victory as he died for our sins. Thank you for cleansing us in the blood of Christ. Thank you that we are protected 
under the blood of the Lamb. Thank you for giving us the great mission. It's really a spiritual military mission to take the testimony that we have of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. And Lord, we do pray for and hope for and certainly uh, are sustained by the promise that you are always with us. Like a great eagle, you have delivered us from the clutches of the evil one, the dragon, Satan, the accuser. And you will keep us. You have promised that you will keep us. We trust in that promise. May our faith grow as we celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ in this Christmas season. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.